Hi. Hi. I'm Rock. I'm a former unbeliever in recovery. And I'm glad you're here for God's recovery meeting where we can get past the addiction to foolishness and where we can find the wisdom of God. Back in December, you may remember, we were studying the Old Testament book of Daniel. And we're going to resume that study next week and continue it throughout the first part of this year. But the last time we were studying Daniel together, we considered one of Daniel's prayers and the implications of that prayer for our lives in the 21st century. Today I want to consider the prayer of another biblical figure, a man whose earliest opinions of himself were highly inflated and whose estimates of God were terribly inadequate. But God patiently gave that fellow the opportunity to learn better, to wise up. And to his credit, he took advantage of those opportunities. His name was Moses. And the prayer we're going to consider isn't found in the earliest books of Scripture that he wrote. It's found in a rather unlikely place. It's found in the Psalms. David included Moses' prayer in the Psalms perhaps because it contains a very strategic request, one that we would be wise to echo every day of this new year. It's found in Psalm 90, verse 12. Moses prayed, Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I've entitled today's study, Are Your Days numbered. And I mean it as a sobering question and a very important reminder. Are your days numbered? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, I can't echo your heart faithfully without the work of the Spirit. We can't receive your truth and apply it without the work of the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. This is a unique moment in time. It will never be repeated. We can't get by with yesterday's provision, and tomorrow's provision isn't there for us yet. Fall fresh on us today. Melt us and mold us and fill us and transform us and liberate us and then use us. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ our Lord and for His honor. Amen and amen. And as we study God's Word together in community and listen for His voice, may the Lord be with you. The older I get, the less I like mirrors. <laughs> Especially first thing in the morning. In a world that is just chock full of empty hype, empty promises, and a steady diet of illusions, the mirror remains one of the few places where we can find unvarnished reality and uncompromised, sometimes brutal, honesty. You see, mirrors have something in common with God. They never lie unless it's those distorted funhouse type, but that's another topic. Now, in my case, the mirror often reminds me of some things I just as soon forget. 
It reminds me that while the view from inside here hasn't changed, the view of those looking in my direction has changed considerably. It reminds me that my once broad shoulders and narrow waist over the years have changed places. (laughs) I recently looked at a picture of myself when I was on a hoops team in college and Things have changed. Things have moved. Gravity has gotten much stronger since then. But the mirror also reminds me of things I need to remember. It reminds me that in this life, I now have far more days behind me than I have in front of me. But it also reminds me I'm still here. And that means God is still working on me and God is still working in me and hopefully God is working through me. I still have lessons to learn. I still have kingdom errands to run. I still have faith adventures to live. And I still have opportunities to acquire greater wisdom. And so do you. And I make that statement because I have it on good authority that as long as we live, God's people can increase in the wisdom that increases abundant living. If you're hearing my voice, you still have time to acquire greater wisdom. But Moses' prayer reminds us that time alone doesn't guarantee wisdom. It may only serve to increase our foolishness. You don't become wise by just hanging around for a long time. There are old fools in this world. Now Moses understood that all too well. Earlier in his life, he had dabbled in foolishness. And he went back for repeat visits on occasion. And at the time he wrote and offered up this prayer, he was surrounded by reminders of foolishness. Because, you see, this prayer was likely written during those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when Moses oversaw the daily life of people who had rejected the wisdom of God. Those 40 years in the wilderness bore vivid testimony to the tragedy of foolish choices and the lack of wisdom. So when Moses prayed, God, teach us to number our days, it's estimated he had been witnessing approximately 140 deaths a day, day after day after day for decades. That has a way of helping you determine what's really important. And so Moses cut to the chase. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Now, the foolishness of the people under Moses' leadership was not Moses' fault, and it certainly wasn't God's fault. The universe's foremost teacher, our God, is always ready to teach, but his targeted learners in Israel were continually unwilling to learn. 
despite repeated invitations to learn a better way, despite repeated warnings, despite repeated disasters, they kept repeating the same unwise choices with consistently tragic results. And their sad legacy reminds us that when we pass on the good things God offers, we're destined to settle for inferior things. Those who refuse godly wisdom settle for ungodly addictions. And the worst addiction of all is our addiction to pride, to our imaginary self-sufficiency, to the stubborn conviction that our appraisals of things are better than the appraisals of God to the determined assumption that we can handle things on our own quite well, thank you very much, and that we really don't need God, and that faith is a crutch and a sign of weakness. That's the pervasive addiction that underlies all of the foolishness and tragedies in our culture. And a culture that refuses to acknowledge that reality, a culture like ours, will find itself dealing with a seemingly endless series of dehumanizing, destructive addictions. While it's working on one, two new ones are born. And time doesn't make things better, it makes things worse. It only serves to increase humanity's hardness of heart and blindness to reality. The absence of wisdom ensures addiction to foolishness. Now, thankfully, God's people can avoid all of that. They can avoid the pains of foolishness because God makes wisdom readily available to His people. James chapter 1 verse 5 makes that abundantly clear. It states in no uncertain terms that if any of God's people, any lacks wisdom, all we have to do is ask, and God will give it to us liberally without whining, without grumbling, and without complaining. But as is usually the case, we still have to do our part. Wisdom isn't automatic for God's people. Scripture contains numerous examples of believers making foolish decisions. Moses himself did it on more than one occasion. In fact, a study recently revealed that approximately 60% of the people whose lives are chronicled in Scripture began well but ended badly. Because despite time, despite God's promises, despite opportunity, they didn't gain wisdom. That's why Moses opened his prayer with the two words, teach us, teach us. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to live in conformity with God's revealed truth. It begins with the knowledge of that truth, and it ends with the application of that truth. It's the ability to know who God is, to know what He's up to in the world, to know what's really going on in the world, and to engage life in a fashion that is consistent with all of those understandings. Wisdom is the opposite of human arrogance. 
Human arrogance places its final authority in human feelings rather than in God's revelation. Human arrogance worships at what I like to call the shrine of the subjective. It looks to its own feelings to define reality, to define identity, to define morality, to define sexuality, and worse, to interpret the Word of God. Human arrogance lives under the influence of false perceptions, spiritual deceptions, and shifting sentiment. It says, if I feel it, it must be real and it must be true. Ignorant to the fact that Scripture says the human heart is terribly deceitful. And deception always begins with ourselves before we apply it to others. I often hear in this world people say, just be true to your feelings. Why in God's name would you do that? If the heart is deceitful, why would you always follow your feelings? God's people don't follow their feelings. Those can change in a moment. God's people follow the inspired, spirit-breathed, eternal, unchanging word and revelation of God. So if we desire better, and I hope you do, if you want to desire acquire wisdom, there are several things you're going to have to do this year. First, you have to lay the appropriate foundation for acquiring wisdom. And the foundation of wisdom is the recognition of God and reverence for Him. Now, Proverbs 9 refers to that recognition as the fear of the Lord. And it says it's the essential beginning point of wisdom. You can't even start the journey to acquiring wisdom until you lay hold of the fear of the Lord. Without that, wisdom will always elude you. Now, we hear the word fear and we tend to think of a negative, crippling emotional response to some pain in the past or threat in the present. That's not the word that the writer used here. The word he uses refers to humble awe and respect adoration. The Word reminds us that wisdom begins in wonder, wonder of God, and it grows in worship of God. And that's yet another reason why corporate and individual worship, not corporate entertainment, is absolutely indispensable to acquiring wisdom. Worship fuels the wonder. Wonder fuels humility. Humility lays the foundation for acquiring wisdom. We'll see that later. Now, once a foundation of reverence is in place, you have to build upon it. And you build upon it, first of all, by prayer. Because wisdom is given to those who ask. Because asking brings focus. God doesn't require us to ask because he's reluctant to give. God is far more eager to bless you than you are to be blessed. God calls us to ask because he knows the act of asking sharpens our spiritual focus. It helps us to recognize our true need. It helps us to discern what God is up to to meet that need and what God has been up to all along. 
You see, I suspect the real meaning of the phrase, you have not because you ask not, is simply that many of God's activities in our lives go undetected because we're not looking for them, and we aren't looking for them because we aren't praying for them. Prayer fixes your focus on what God is already up to. It's more about what He's already doing than what you think He needs to do. But asking isn't the end, it's only the beginning. Acquiring wisdom involves something more, something that should be obvious but sadly is not. Wisdom is acquired by studying God's Word. By studying God's Word. February, we'll be starting another 91-week journey through God's Word as a congregation. It's indispensable to acquiring wisdom. Because Scripture contains the insights and the counsel that we need, wrapped up in human illustrations, fleshed out in specific commands or general principles. So this year, if you spend hours on the Internet and minutes in the Word of God, rest assured, you will not acquire wisdom. You'll acquire STDs spiritually transmitted dysfunctions. If you focus your thoughts on some screen, rather than screening your thoughts through the filter of God's Word, you won't acquire wisdom. If you fix your mind on things that are trivial, things that are temporary, things that are troublesome, or worse, things that are evil, rather than fixing your mind on what Scripture refers to as things above, you won't acquire wisdom. If you stop what you're doing for every text message alert, but rarely stop to listen to the sacred text wherein God alerts you to foolishness in your life, you won't acquire wisdom. Because wisdom involves the application of God's truth, and you cannot apply what you do not know. And if you can't apply what you do not know, the flip side is equally true. You will not know what you do not apply. Once you're aware of something God requires, you must put it into practice by faith or it becomes worse than meaningless. That's why just cramming biblical information into your head will not make you wise. There are fools who spout Scripture. In fact, a lot of fools like to quote Scripture. The reality is truth that isn't known and truth that is known but not applied are both barriers to wisdom. Now, the final truths about wisdom I want to highlight today are revealed in Moses' choice of words. Listen to them again. Teach us to number. Say that word, number. Teach us to number our days that we may present, say that word, present, present to you a heart of wisdom. Now, those carefully selected words remind us, first of all, that foolishness and addiction live in the moment. Wisdom takes the long view of reality and it applies it in the moment. If you've had the misfortune of having a friend or a family member's life devastated by addiction, you know when the addiction calls, 
That person doesn't think about tomorrow. They don't think about the next hour. They don't think about the next week. They don't think about the next month. They don't think about the next year. They don't think about five years from now. They think of that moment and only that moment. Foolishness and addiction always live in the moment. They never take the long view of things. That's why they're addicting. That's why they're foolishness. But Moses said, that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Now, he was foreshadowing something Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul said there, we, meaning believers, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to hear God review what we did with our life, life and to either receive or forfeit reward. You see, there is a judgment for God's people. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have escaped what is called the great white throne judgment, the judgment wherein somebody's eternal destiny is determined. Your eternal destiny has already been settled through the grace of God. But you still, as a believer, face a judgment for either reward or the loss of reward because the grace of God that removes our penalty does not remove our responsibility. There is a day of judgment for God's people, and wisdom prepares for that moment, that moment when the only opinion in the universe that will matter to you is the opinion of God, not the opinion of family, not the opinion of friends, not the opinion of employees or your employer, and certainly not the opinion of a corrupt culture. In that moment, the number of likes you received on social media will mean absolutely nothing. The only like that will matter is the approval of God. Wise people understand that. Wise people understand that the resurrection and the second coming of Christ is not the great equalizer. What do I mean? Some people mistakenly assume it's an old wives' tale that hangs around in churches that in the resurrection, at the return of Christ, we're all got to be made perfectly equally mature on the way up. Hogwash. When Jesus returns, you'll continue from where you were when he came back. The idea that the believer who was careless and complacent, just glad to be saved and little else, will suddenly be just as discerning and mature and equally rewarded as the believer who applied their days unto wisdom is theological, biblical nonsense. It is wishful thinking. Some at the judgment seat of Christ will gain reward. Some at the judgment seat of Christ will lose reward. That's why the reference that God will wipe all tears from their eyes refers to a moment after the second coming, after the resurrection. Because if you have the misfortune of standing before God and realize you really didn't do much of anything with the incredible gift he put in your hand, you will weep. Now, God won't let you weep for eternity, but you will weep initially. 
And you see, Scripture also says that those who are faithful will receive crowns, but later it says they'll cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus in recognition of the fact that only he's worthy. And my passion is in that moment, I want to have something to cast. I don't want to be empty-handed. And if you don't apply your heart onto wisdom, you'll be empty-handed in that moment. You may want to move to the back of the crowd while you watch other people cast their crowns at Jesus' feet. You might say to yourself now, hey, you know, if I just make it, that's fine with me. You won't say that when you make it. You see, when we stand before God, we'll either present to him a heart of wisdom or we will present to him a heart filled with regret. Moses understood that. So he said, teach us to number our days that we might present to you someday a heart of wisdom, not regret. And I like the word numbering. Because numbering is different than counting. Counting just gives you a total. Numbering attaches individual significance to each one. That's why I always like the fact God doesn't say he has the very hairs of your head counted. He says he has the very hairs of your head numbered. It's God's way of saying there's no detail in your life so small that he isn't concerned with it. If it's just counting... In my case, the count keeps going down. No, it's numbered. And numbering your days means you give each day significance. You recognize it is a never-to-be-repeated opportunity to acquire wisdom. And this year will offer you 365 of those significant opportunities. That's why I titled this study, Are Your Days Numbered? I wanted to emphasize the reality that one day we will stand before an all-knowing God to present to Him our heart. And in that moment, we'll discover if it is a heart full of wisdom or a heart filled with regret. I shared with my growth group last evening, I read what one fellow did to encourage his pursuit of wisdom. He took his current age, and he factored it against the average age that an American male dies in this culture. And then he multiplied the number of years by the number of days. And then he got a big plastic barrel, you know, the kind that cheese balls come in at Costco. And he went out and he bought dried beans. And he counted those beans out carefully for the number of days from his current age to the average age of death. And every day, he would open the jar and take out one bean and ask God to help him to use that unique opportunity that will never come back. And then he'd close it up. And of course, as he did that, the level kept going down and down and down and down and poignantly reminding him He was running out of opportunities to present a heart to wisdom to his God. You may want to do that. I recently bought shares in beans. It would be good. (laughs) 
So all of that to say, the most important commitment you're going to make this year is not a commitment to more exercise, healthier diet. Why aren't cheeseburgers one of the basic food groups? I, I want to ask Jesus that. It's not a commitment to a more consistent devotional life or more effective witnessing or better time management or improved financial stewardship. It's the commitment to gain wisdom because that's the commitment that lays the foundation for every other godly commitment. Jesus said you could sum up everything in love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. But if you haven't acquired wisdom, you will not know how to love God and you will not know how to love your neighbor because the reality is you will not even know how to relate to yourself properly. That's why I'm troubled by the fact that in so many places I think pastors giving people what they want to hear because they're pathetic number whores are not giving people the word and the wisdom of God. They're giving them feel-good therapy. Every week, oh, you're wonderful, and, and, and God just loves you. You're so awesome. You're so wonderful, and, 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 and the world's got to recognize that one day, and, and, and you're just, look, you don't get wise that way. Because if you don't know the Word, you're always got to struggle with your identity. Because we learn our identities where? In the Word. If you don't know the Word, you're always got to struggle in relationship. Because where do you learn how to do relationship? In the Word. If you don't acquire wisdom, if you don't know the Word, you're not got to know what loving God means. Let me remind you, Jesus said it means you keep His commandments. Not that you feel good about your homeboy, that you keep his commandments. Everything else is just talk. You're not going to know how to love God, love your neighbor, or relate to yourself. The reality is, if you don't have the wisdom of God, if you don't know the Word of God, you're not going to recognize that this passionate pursuit for self-esteem is a joke. We don't need to pursue self-esteem we have truckloads of self-esteem. The reason we get disquieted about who we are is because we esteem ourselves so highly. You say, where do you get that? Scripture says, no man hates himself but nourishes and cherishes himself. The issue isn't esteeming yourself higher, it's esteeming yourself properly before an awesome, all-knowing, sovereign God. So we feed people self-esteem, self-esteem, and we produce selfish Christians who are clueless about loving God, loving their neighbor, because they're strung out on the cocaine of feel-good. That's not wisdom. That's betrayal. And I would rather die than preach that garbage. Because when I stand at that judgment seat, I don't want God to say, you gave them what they wanted, but I called you to give them what they needed. So are your days numbered? And are you applying them to gaining a heart of wisdom?
I want to leave you with one final thought before I pray. The wisdom that God desires for us doesn't come in isolation. It requires community. It requires constant exposure to people. Where do I get that? Proverbs 11.2. I said we'd come back to Proverbs. It says that pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. How do you acquire wisdom? Well, foundation of reverence, building it on prayer, building with your knowledge of the word and the application of that word, but also by immersing yourself up to your armpits in relationships and especially relationships with people who are different than you. Because those are the relationships that open your understanding. Those are the relationships that push your envelope. Those are the relationships that call for uncomfortable recognitions and prayers of confession. Those are the relationships that call for patience and humility and forgiveness and rebuke and instruction, which is why I greatly dislike something else about most American churches. They're culture clubs. Everybody who looks like me, dresses like me, thinks like me, acts like me. Hanging around places like that will keep you terminally ignorant. You need to hear stories that trouble your presuppositions. You need to hear people's experiences different than your own to realize, maybe I do have some issues. The choice to number your days is made individually. But acquiring a heart of wisdom happens in community. It's appalling and disconcerting to me that the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus, the more American churches are about hunkering down with people like yourself. It's not, that's not a wise way to prepare for standing before him. Let's pray together. Father, To be a believer is to swim upstream in a downstream world. While everybody else follows feelings, we follow revealed truth. While everybody else puts emphasis on their understanding, we seek your understandings. If we're pursuing wisdom, if we're numbering our days. Lord, help us this year to intentionally number our days And acquire hearts of wisdom that we might present to you hearts filled with your wisdom and a legacy of that wisdom. I pray that in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen and amen.